0: We are in Ephesians chapter 5 today, so go ahead and turn there. Uh, Last week we talked about the works of darkness and how Paul contrasts them to the fruit of light. And we mentioned just how because Jesus loves us and he gave himself up for us, we see at the beginning of chapter 5, because of those things, we're expected as God's people to live differently. We're different. We're called out. We're not the same. We are now light. And because we are now light, Paul says to walk as children of light. Paul is calling believers to become what they are. And so we talked about sanctification briefly and how that's kind of that state of becoming what we are. We're all in that state. And we don't want to be deceived, as verse 6 says, by empty words, by people telling us that sin isn't really that bad or that it's not real or that these certain things aren't sin because they're acceptable in our society. We don't want to be deceived in that way. We want to continue to take the light of truth into our own hearts and into our own families and into our church and into the world. And so we're commanded to hold each other accountable in the church. We're commanded to discipline each other out of and away from sexual sin. It's a big enough issue for us to do something uncomfortable for the sake of a brother or sister. When we do this, when we talk maybe in an uncomfortable way to someone about their sin, we do this with the motivation of love and reconciliation as the goal. But Paul is saying, you used to be darkness, now you are light. Become what you are. There is transforming power in the light of Christ. Don't run from it, run to it. And so in our text this morning, Paul continues explaining the traits of someone who is walking not only in love... Who's walking not only in light, but today we'll talk about someone who's walking in wisdom. And so as we read this text together and then have a word of prayer, I hope that our attitude is something along the lines of, God, I, I want to please you with how I live. How do I do that wisely? How do I walk wisely in this world? And so let's, let's read. We'll be in verses 15 through 21 together. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us understand how to walk this way. Help us to learn to walk in wisdom, Lord. To do this, I think it's going to mean abandoning the way this world says to be wise and learning to walk in your ways. and. Lord, I, I also think it's probably going to mean giving up habits that don't glorify you and replacing them with habits, habits that involve the church and accountability. Um, walking in wisdom and walking by the Spirit, Lord, I, I do think that's going to involve our brothers and sisters in the church. So give us grace for ourselves and for one another as we work hard at doing this better. Lord, I pray that you would transform our minds. Our desires and our lives and use your word to do it this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Who has a King James version this morning? Any of you reading out of the King James? There's a word there that's not used in the, in most other English translations. Circumspectly. Who knows what that word means? circumspectly. Well, let's talk about it for a second because I like, I like the, the way that the KJV talks about this. Circumspectly, carefully is the other translation. This means careful to consider all circumstances and possible consequences. Th- that's how we're told to walk. Walk careful to consider all circumstances and possible consequences. It's not a Bible dictionary. That's Merriam-Webster online that gives us that definition. Here's some other synonyms for carefully or circumspectly, watchful, diligent, prudent, perfect. Pay close attention, Paul says, to how you walk. Take heed how you walk. How many of you guys have seen the movie Free Solo? That's a rock climbing, a free climbing um, movie. So it follows this guy named Alex Honnold, and he is going to free climb, solo climb, um, El Capitan in June of 2017. It was his goal to climb this without any ropes, without anything like that. And so they show his preparation for this. And I thought this was interesting in the movie because he actually works through every handhold, every foothold, every swing of his arm is mapped out before he ever starts his climb. Now, he does the climb with harnesses and support several times first to know what he's going to do. He studies what other people have done. He's got friends in the rock climbing community that give him advice, but every finger hold is mapped out before he ever even started to make his way to the top. Look carefully, pay close attention, right? That's what he did in this movie. And thankfully, he didn't die. I just spoiled the movie for you, sorry. But he, he makes it to the top without any problem. But he was paying close attention every little detail of his movement. Brothers and sisters, while we don't know what's coming in this life, like Alex knew climbing the the rock face, I think we're being called to be prepared just like he was. Now, I I don't mean that every decision we have to make, we sit down and have a 30-minute strategy brainstorming session and weigh our options and make pros and cons lists and all of that stuff. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is I think that we should work at being so connected with Jesus Christ that our relationship with him touches and shapes every step that we take. We are so connected with Christ that our relationship with him touches every step, every move that we make. See, because Paul uses the word walk 25 times in his writings. In all of his New Testament writings, he uses it 25 times. He uses it six times in Ephesians alone. And every time he uses it, he uses it to mean to live, So when he says, look carefully then how you walk, he's saying, pay attention to your life. Pay attention to how you live. Pay attention to what you are occupied with. And so that forces us to ask a question of ourselves this morning. Do wise and holy things influence how we live? Do wise and holy things influence what we are occupied with? Christians, if we have been awakened to the light then we have to walk wisely. We have to live wisely. Paul says, walk in wisdom. Look at verse 16. We walk in wisdom because we're supposed to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. I'm going to go back to the King James Version again here. ESV says, make best use of the time. The King James Version says, redeeming the time. I like that. I like that phrase. It talks about redeeming the time this concept of rescuing the time or the days that we have, we are faced every day with time that could just slip away. Now, some of us don't feel that way. Some of us feel like we have one appointment and we go right from that appointment to the next appointment and there's no time. But in reality, there's time in our day, no matter what we do or who we are, what age we are, and there's temptation to just kind of let it flitter away. And so Paul, I think, here is giving us some instruction and he's saying, the, the time that could slip away into uselessness and being ineffective, instead of allowing that, scoop it up and rescue it and use it for good. Walking in wisdom means that we don't just generally waste our time in laziness. When you put down the remote and pick up the Bible, that's rescuing your time. When you spend your day serving a brother or sister... That's rescuing the day. That is redeeming the time that you have. The times that we live in necessitate that we go with the light of Christ to those who need it. We know that this world is a dark place. Brothers and sisters, this world needs your light. It doesn't need you. It doesn't need me sitting on the couch binge watching Netflix. It needs the light of Christ shining through us into the darkness. We cannot waste our lives, we cannot waste our time, and we should not waste the light that we are given. How we live matters, verse 16, the end of that says, because the days are evil. I think this text is a reminder about how to use our time and prioritize our lives based on the wisdom of God's word, not on what everybody else is doing. I, I do want to be clear, though, and help us to understand, really resting, true rest is not laziness, it's not wrong, it's not idleness. It's an active and conscious understanding that God is absolutely sovereign and sits alone on the throne as ruler of all. So it's admitting that I am not those things. Resting is admitting that God is in control and not me. And then not just admitting that, but I think finding some joy in that admission. Joy in recognizing that I'm not in charge. Think about creation, What did God do after he finished creating? He rested. Now, do we really think that God needed to rest? I don't think so. We can see that that is an example for us because we tend, in our fallen state, we tend to just kind of ruin everything. Rest, hard work, even these good things that God gives us, we tend to go extremes on. And so we need some balance and we need to rest sometimes. But brothers and sisters, we live in dark days. And so we have to passionately shine our light while we can. We have to make the best use of our time. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, the word foolish here is nothing extraordinary. It's exactly what you would expect. Mindless, ignorant, even egotistical. Pride, I think, is another word for foolishness here. Don't foolishly waste away your days thinking you know better than God how you should spend them. Don't be mindless about how you spend your time. I think the opposite of foolishness is what Paul is getting at in the second half of verse 17. He says, the will of the Lord. Certainly, the will of the Lord is not foolish. And we talked last week about what God wills for his children. What is God's will for your life? There is an answer to that for every believer that we talked about in Romans chapter 8. 28 through 30. It's to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And so every high point, every low point is ordained and brought into your life by the Father who loves you for your good and for his glory. That's how he redeems our days. And to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ is not a foolish thing. It is not a foolish endeavor. I think when when a lot of people hear this term or this phrase, the will of God, they probably have a, a misunderstanding of what that looks like and what that is. We tend to think of the will of God for our lives and just the big stuff, right? So where am I going to go to college? Or who am I going to marry? Or what career am I going to pursue? Or how many kids are we going to have? Or how we, the, the list goes on. But we think of it in just these these big decisions. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's what Paul has in mind here necessarily. Remember what we talked about last, last week, evaluating and discerning something? If I'm going to discern that the wall that I'm building is straight, what do I use as a a reference point? I use a level. If I'm trying to discern how much an object weighs, what do I use? I use a scale. I think it's fair to say that God's will for every believer is found in his word that's given to every believer. If we want to know what God's will is for our life, it's found in his word. We shouldn't go seeking it in other places or through other avenues. It's found in his word. The Bible reveals what God has called every believer to pursue. And the Bible also reveals what God has called every believer to avoid. And Paul, in just chapter 5 alone, not counting before that in chapter 4, he's giving us plenty of things to not do and things to do. What we should spend our time doing and pursue and what we should not spend our time doing and avoid. What we pursue and what we avoid affects more than just us as an individual though. This is a biblical principle that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. How we live affects more than just us. It affects all of those people around us. Sin separates us from God. It also separates us from God's people. But through Christ, this is where Paul is going, but through Christ everything changes. All of that changes. And so he starts to emphasize this in chapter 5, verse 18, all the way through chapter 6, verse 24, that our new life in Christ affects our relationships. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, talks about how our relationships with one another are now different. Chapter 5, 22 through 33, our relationship with our spouses are now different. Chapter 6, 1 through 4, our relationship with our kids is different. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, our relationships in the workplace, at our jobs, should be different. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, our relationship with the world is different. And it's all different because of Christ, because what he has done, and only through Christ can you have healthy relationships in those areas. It is only through a relationship with Jesus that you can have real and right and healthy relationships in those areas. Let's keep reading in chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit. So here is one of the first things that Paul says about having healthy relationships. He says be filled with the spirit. Instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the spirit. Now, there are people who use this text, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, to justify their jo- their choice to drink alcohol as long as they don't get drunk. There are people who use this verse, Ephesians chapter five, eighteen, to justify their choice to abstain from alcohol altogether. It's so easy to find a verse in the Bible, attach our own emotions and opinions to it, and then just fail to remember the context that it was in originally. Because Paul, I don't think, is only talking about alcohol here. He is talking about it, but I don't think he's only talking about alcohol. The, the word that the ESV translates, debauchery, is a broader term. It says don't get drunk with wine because that's debauchery. Debauchery is a broader term that encompasses a bunch of aspects of unholy living. And Paul has already talked about some of these. Sexual immorality, drunkenness is involved there. He's already talked about crude talk. He means generally out-of-control behavior. Both Timothy and Peter in their writings use this same word, debauchery, to talk about being out-of-control or riotous The temptation for us as believers, I think, is to swing towards legalism and say that anyone who takes a drink at all is in sin. Or it's to swing the other way and to say, well, my Christian freedom allows me to do whatever I want with regards to alcohol. But what's the context of Paul's statement here? Paul's instructions about alcohol alcohol here Appear in a conversation about how being in Christ changes everything, including our relationships with others. This is a continuation of God's instruction to the church on one anothering. It comes right at the beginning of a single sentence that spans verses 18 through 21. Just, I don't know if you noticed that. 18 through 21 is another one of Paul's famous long run-on sentences. It's all connected though. And this sentence that involves alcohol comes right after Paul has told us, look carefully how you walk. 15b, walk in wisdom. So walk wisely. Verse 16, make the best use of your time. Verse 17, do not be foolish. Verse 17b, understand God's will. So in this one sentence in verses 18 through 21, Paul goes on to talk about alcohol use, about being filled with the Spirit, about how we address one another about singing, about giving thanks, about submitting to one another, and about having reverence for Jesus Christ. All of that comes right after what Paul has already told us. So I want us to practice this morning just some biblical discernment together. What of these things can we hold up to the whole counsel of God and discern what pleases Him? Does sexual immorality please God? Does drunkenness please God? Does crude talk please God? What can we evaluate under the light of Scripture and see what would be God's will for his children? What Paul, I think, is getting at here is how a Spirit-filled believer is a person who lives in right relationship with God and also in right relationship with others in the Christian community. The wise person will not be filled with alcohol or sexual immorality or idolatry because you cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're already full of those things. Now, I have a cup of water here, but if this cup of water was completely full and I wanted to add more of another cup of something into this cup of water, what would have to happen to what's in this cup? It would have to leave because you can only fit so much water in this cup. And after you reach a certain point, it's going to come out. And so if I've got a cup full of water and I want to add more of something into it, what's in that cup will have to come out before anything that I put into it can fit. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, it has to be the same for us. The only way for Christ to increase is for us to decrease. The only way for us to be filled with the Spirit is for less of us to be in us. So the discussion about the place of alcohol in the life of a Christian, that's going to continue on. But I think we should be 100% sure of something from this text this morning. It is never God's will for a Christian to be drunk. Do not be drunk, he says. That is never God's will. It is a sin that affects not only the person, but also everyone around that person. That's why we have laws that limit the use of it. Being filled with alcohol oftentimes leads to other sin because it makes a person lose control. It weakens their understanding. So being filled with the Spirit, on the other hand, makes a person actually more in control, right? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So put away drunkenness and put on the Spirit. Be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit makes the Christian more and more like Christ. So uh, just to be clear this morning, this is not a condemnation on alcohol. It's a condemnation on all unholy living. Because drunkenness is just as much a sin as crude joking is, which is just as much a sin as idolatry, which is just as much a sin as sexual immorality. All unholy living, all riotous living or debauchery is wrong. It should not exemplify what a Christian is or what we are about. Anything which has the power to control or to harm or to hurt a Christian should be handled with really extreme care and alcohol would fit into that category. I think it would be easy to chalk up all of this that we've talked about to the common struggle of man, right? It's not a big deal. We talked a little bit about this last week. It's not that big a deal because it's a problem for everybody. So the the temptation is then to not make a big deal out of it in our own hearts, in our own lives, and then make no effort to evaluate ourselves under the, the light of God's Word. I'd ask that you please don't do that this morning. Let the light of Christ expose the dark areas in your heart and in your life and plead for grace, for repentance, and in making the changes necessary to reflect him better, to reflect him more clearly. Ask yourself this, does what I'm doing promote inward godliness or does it lead me away from it? There are any number of, of trusted people here who care for you and would love to sit down and talk with you about how you can battle with these things but you can overcome these things In your life, when we sing our final song in just a few moments, I'd encourage you to evaluate yourself in this light and grab someone. Come and talk with me. I can direct you to them. Let's look at verse 19 through 21 before we do that, before we sing. I think verses 19 through 21 are the result of a Christian being filled with the Spirit. Because this is what Paul says immediately after. He says, be filled with the Spirit. This is what that looks like. When we're filled with the Spirit, what's going to come out? Paul lists some things. You can see them with me. He says that we're going to address one another in song. We're going to give thanks to God. We're going to submit to one another. Reverence for Christ is included in there too, I think. But those are the big three. So let's go, let's talk about those in order. Why singing? And we, we talked about this back in, um, I think, August of 2019 when we were going through why what we do when we gather and why we do it. And so we, that was a sermon called Why We Sing. You can listen to that for a little bit more. But why sing? And it got me thinking about singing again. Uh, many of you have, have little kids. I've got four in my house, 10 and under. And you could probably imagine, it's a lot of singing that happens. Singing is a big part of, of our lives, anyway. Someone in our house is almost always singing. And sometimes the songs are, are fantastic they' are songs they hear on the radio or from movies and they're, and they 're really good and then sometimes the songs get a little weird and i don 't I don't know if you've got if your kids ever did this. Um, both of my precious girls have done this, but they 'll just start singing a song, and then whatever they see makes its way into the song and so we 'll be driving down the road and I've got video of, of Lux singing about a housing development and putting roofs on homes and the cars driving by us and, and it's fantastic. There's, a, there's a song that's in our heart. Paul Tripp says that every one of us has a song in our hearts, but what are we worshiping with that song? That's where we need to focus. That's where we need to understand. And so Paul says when you're filled with the spirit, Singing is going to be something that comes out. Now, some of you, I've worked with you guys for a long time, and there are some of you that when you work around here, you sing. And I don't know if you even notice it. Some of you hum. Some of you whistle. But you do that when you work. We're setting up chairs or you're making copies and you hum or you're singing a little bit. Now, I want to believe, and I think that this is true, that that comes from a place of contentment and from a heart of thankfulness to the Lord. And I think this is why kids sing, because they're full of joy, because they feel safe, because they feel secure, and because they're thankful. They don't have to worry about a lot of other things. They're just free to express the joy that's already in their hearts, and that comes out in singing a lot of times. I think those who are filled with the Spirit Sing to Jesus, especially because there's, n- there's no one else who's worthy of the kind of praise that he is. And so that's why we sing in church, because there's no other song that could be better to sing together. Singing is an avenue for Christian love. And I think too mutual submission, verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how we sing in the church is even a way of submitting to one another. How, how does that work? Well, I, we recognize that our church has multiple generations in it. And so there's, there's some in their 90s and there's some newborns and everywhere in between. And so not every song resonates with every person. And so we sing a variety of different songs in the church. And there are some who would cut off fellowship based on the kind of music that a church sings. And that makes me sad because I don't think, I don't think our churches should be separated by the kind of music that we sing or the kind of instruments that we use. I'm called in the church to lay down some of my preferences, s- to submit to you and your preferences sometimes in the church, and you're called to do the same thing at times. Now I, I don't think this is only in the context of the songs that we sing, but it certainly applies to that. And so I really think that we serve one another in the songs that we sing. Philippians chapter two, three and four says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I think that addressing each other in song out of the thankfulness of our hearts and putting others' needs before our own are evidences of a spirit-filled Christian, of a spirit-filled life. To be filled with the spirit, we're supposed to constantly be emptying ourselves of us so that we can rightly submit to one another and to the Lord. There's absolutely a horizontal aspect of why we sing. And that's something that I didn't realize for a long time. There's a horizontal aspect of why we sing. And that's, that's why we don't turn off the lights real low when we sing together, because we want to see each other lifting high the name of Christ. We want our kids to watch mom and dad surrender as we sing. And you can't always do that when the lights are down low. So that's one of the decisions that we make as a church to do. We're instructed to address one another in this way. And there's a horizontal aspect to it. So uh, it's clear that music is not only a means of connecting with and glorifying God. It connects us to one another. When we gather for corporate worship and we sing to God, I really believe we're ministering to one another. And Paul doesn't just say that there's only one song to sing. He he doesn't say that there's only one style to use, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I think this gives room for some creativity in the body of Christ for what we sing and how we sing when the church gathers. This does not mean that we can just say or sing or do anything we want when the church gathers. We're given plenty of examples of worthy worship in Scripture, of what it should contain, and some things that it should not contain. And our desire as a church body is to continually critique and compare what we do when we worship to what the Bible teaches. The whole church, I think, is involved in this, though. Is what we're singing true of God? Is what we're singing biblical? Is what we're singing building up the body of Christ? God intends for everything that we do as a church to edify one another and to glorify him. That's what we do when we gather. Look at verse 21. This is part of it too. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this idea of submission is important here. Because it's going to be a recurring theme in the next 21 verses. Paul talks about submission in the context of wives and husbands. He talks about submission in the context of children and parents. He talks about submission in the context of employees and employers and bosses. So as we wrap things up this morning, I I just first want us to try to get a solid base of understanding for what biblical submission really looks like and what biblical submission really is. And I want us to notice something from our text today about this. Notice that before speaking about submission in the family or in the workplace, Paul points out that we should submit to one another in the church. The Spirit leads us to relationships where practical acts of love are demonstrated. It can only be with the spirit that he enables us to do what we won't want to do in our natural state. To love and submit ourselves to other people. You know as well as I do that loving people who have not earned your love and submitting people who do not deserve your submission are things that just go against the grain of our very beings, it seems. Why should we do that when they haven't fill in the blank? Submit means to arrange under, to arrange under. So Paul, I think, likely has a military understanding of this and soldiers in the army and the different ranks there. But I want to be clear, we don't submit to one another because some people are more important than others in the family or in the church or even in the workplace. We don't submit because some are more important than others. We submit to other people because there is a biblical order of authority. That's why we submit. Because I guarantee you, you can look across at your spouse and think back to a time when they were not worthy of your love or your submission. And it's in how we respond in those moments that I think really reveal how filled of the spirit we really are. Now, it's unfortunately true that bosses and parents and husbands sometimes use this concept and these verses to guilt or oppress those under them, their wives, to submit into doing whatever they say. That is not what Paul means when he speaks about wives submitting to their husbands. That is not what Paul means when he talks about children obeying their parents. Husbands and employers and parents don't hold places of authority in order to subjugate those under them. They hold places of authority because God put them there so he can humble them and that they can then go serve in love. That's what biblical submission really looks like. That's what biblical authority really looks like. We submit to others because Christ is the ultimate authority in our lives. And so it's not so much that we're submitting to the person that God has put in authority over us, it's that we're submitting to Christ who is over each one of us. At the core, any submission is a result of what verse 21 says here, a reverence for Christ. If you do not revere, if you do not feel a deep respect or admir- admiration for Jesus, how on earth can you respect or submit to the authority of someone here on earth? You cannot. Jesus Christ is the king and out of reverence or respect for the king, we gladly submit to his rule and then we serve others with compassion and care because we see the kind of compassion and care that our good king gives us. If we're exercising authority in any other way than what we've just talked about, we are doing it wrong and we need to repent because that is not modeling the kind of authority that Jesus has over us would you like your walk with the Lord to be deeper than it is right now? That sounds like a terrible Christian infomercial or something. But I think if we really asked ourselves that question, we would all affirm that. Yeah, I want my walk with Christ to be deeper than what it is right now. I think there's a way for that to happen. And I think Paul is telling us right now, it involves surrendering to him in ways that you might currently be fighting against. It's going to take revering, and believing Jesus enough to trust his rule over your life, even when you don't want to, or even when you don't understand what's going on right now, even when you can't make complete sense of the situation, where does your heart go? To submission to Jesus? To aligning yourself, arranging yourself under his care and authority? Or jumping outside of that and doing your own thing? if we desire, if you said, yeah, I want my relationship to be deeper with Jesus today, if we really desire that, we have to not only let go of lesser things in our lives, but I think we have to actively be rooting them out to make space for more of the Savior. Remember, he must increase. And in order for him to increase, what has to happen to us? We have to decrease, that's right. So church, brothers and sisters, may Christ increase in us. This morning, let's pray together. Oh, Father, this is, this does just rub right against what we enjoy and what we like. Every one of us has seen a model of authority that has not been right. Most of us will be the ones modeling wrong authority at some point. And in those moments, Lord, I pray that you would not only forgive us of that, grant us repentance, change our mind, about whether that's okay or not. And then, Lord, help us to be aligned more and more under your authority. God, help us to revere you, to respect you, to submit to you first. How could we ever hope to submit to someone else if we won't submit to you? So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word today, use your spirit in our midst to break us where we need breaking, to mold us into your people as you would have us. Lord, I pray that he would increase this morning and that we would decrease that I would decrease so that Christ is what is known about us as a church as us as Christians as us as moms and dads husbands and wives employees and employers that we would reflect Jesus so clearly that people can't help but see the light of Christ coming out of us And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be full of the things of this world, but instead we'd be full of more of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.